You can subscribe to my Substack by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, finding people who know all sorts of interesting things that typically don't get reported properly in the corporate-controlled mainstream. Today, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about what's really going on on this planet, and maybe even beyond, (laughs) with somebody uh, who is both very well-versed in standard university-type science, and also uh, some of the more esoteric alternative thing, uh, worldviews and views of what's actually going on. And that's Josh Middledorf. I've had Josh on several times. He's an anti-aging science expert, among other things. So, hey, welcome back, Josh. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, there are a few people I can talk about these subjects with, uh, like you, Kevin. Yeah, likewise. Uh, so, um, it's funny, just when I got on Skype to call you a few minutes ago, I saw a message that had just come in from Alan, the producer, saying, you've got to interview Josh. <laughs> he didn't even know that we planned to do one. So I guess that's serendipity. Uh, uh-huh. And he was Great. impressed by your new article published in The Defender. That's RFK Jr.'s uh, outfit. Five theories on the origin of Omicron, the variant that might end the pandemic. And so he wants to hear you talk about that before we get into all the really esoteric stuff. Uh, you, you said, though, that my Friday Night Live show with Meryl Ness and Joel Hirshhorn uh, kind of summed up a lot of your view on these topics. Yeah, I I share uh, their view, um, especially Meryl. I'm in touch with Meryl frequently, so um, my view and hers coincide. I'm just to sum up what I see, see as the salient features of the whole pandemic. First, that there's strong evidence it was created in a laboratory. And I, I don't like to think of a leak. It just sounds too fortuitous. Uh, I think this was done on purpose, especially considering all the foreknowledge that was uh, apparently had ahead of time by uh, all the suspicious powers within the U.S. government and um, the Gates establishment. Um, the part of the virus that was engineered apparently was the spike protein. And that was something we found out only a year later, that the spike protein is toxic. Usually the spike protein of a virus just attaches to the cell. It affords entry into the cell. But this one seems to be the focus of all the engineering. It does all the damage. It sneaks past the blood-brain barrier into the brain. It damages neurons in the brain. It causes blood clots, which lead to heart attacks. It damages arteries. It damages fertility. Um, it has pieces of the HIV virus in it. Uh, all these things. Well, what, what a great thing to teach your body how to manufacture with mRNA. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so then the, the next thing that we notice is that in the rush to make the vaccine in a hurry, what do they pick? All of the companies that are making vaccines, they're based on one protein from the virus, and that is the spike protein. So they're introducing into the body either by directly introducing it or by, as you say, causing the body to manufacture it, the most toxic part 
of of the virus. Now, was that an accident? Was that arranged ahead of time? Uh, I don't know. Certainly the people lower down who did this can be excused for not knowing what they were doing. But uh, it goes far toward explaining why this is far and away the most damaging vaccine, that the most deadly vaccine that's ever been produced, maybe 50 times the adverse events of any vaccine that's ever been introduced in the past. Um, what, what do you think of, of the objection, uh, which I just heard in a very strong form from Ron Unz? It's actually an objection I've raised myself in the past uh, up to this notion that VAERS is going to be about 50 times underreported, maybe 41 times, I guess, is a number that's been used. Uh, and that would uh, include, you know, underreports of, of deaths. And that's how you get these huge death numbers. Ron Unz argued that uh, since the vaccine has such a high profile compared to previous vaccines, and since there's such a huge and hysterical anti-vax movement, as he puts it, that couldn't there be anti-vaxxers sort of swamping the VAERS system with goofy reports? And I, I, I personally, I think that's a little uh, extreme. But we could imagine that these high-profile vaccines would be drawing more VAERS reports than previous one vaccines. And so, therefore, maybe this death count based on VAERS is too high. Um, what, why is that idea wrong? I don't know that it's wrong. VAERS is an opaque system. Um, it's a voluntary system. What we know is that there are 50 times as many adverse events reported as was reported with previous vaccines. And that, that corresponds, well, th there are other indications you can look at. There's the increase in all cause mortality which seems to correspond to the introduction of the um, the vaccine into various countries. There's the um, uh, European equivalent of theirs, which seems to be reporting the same thing. Um, I don't pretend to know that the multiplier is 10 or 20 or 100. Uh, I I'm pretty sure that theirs is underreporting, whether it's more underreporting than it was in the past or less, as, as you say, because it's a high profile vaccine. That sounds plausible to me. It's also plausible that the underreporting uh, depends on the symptom to a great degree. Uh, if you have anaphylaxis right after getting the shot, it's much more likely to be reported than if you get a sore arm the next day. Um, and certainly deaths are more likely to be reported if they're in close proximity to the date of the injection than uh, milder symptoms. Uh, various people are making various guesses. Somebody says 31 is the magic number. I'm guessing it's somewhere between 10 and 100. And I'm... Uh, 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 say you have to look at different kinds of evidence to come up with a better estimate than that. Yeah, Meryl Ness made the point that uh, she thinks the uh, the government and the vaccine makers actually have a lot better data than we have, and they're not making it public, uh, she thinks, because it probably wouldn't be very reassuring. 
Uh, absolutely. There was the vaccine um, safe, the safe, safe vac. What's it called? Yeah. Vac safe. Vac safe. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the vac safe reporting system, which tracks uh, a cell phone app and presumably it gets a fair sample. Anybody who gets this app reports whether or not they have any adverse effects and it's much easier to use. And that is a database that would be very revealing if we had it. But the CDC is holding it close to their chest. And as you say, as Merrill says, why would they not be releasing it if it's completely exculpatory of the vaccines? Right. And why would they have created this whole opaque system in the first place? And why would the U.S. data, and the U.S., of course, being run by big pharma far more than other countries, why would the U.S. system be so opaque and seemingly deliberately uh, confusing uh, if it weren't created precisely to obscure problems with vaccines? Now, there's, of course, an innocent explanation for that, which is that they genuinely believe that vaccines are generally good for public health and that if you have, you know, a relatively few, but of course horrific adverse events going on, that if everybody really knew about that, if they knew the truth, then there would be a much bigger anti-vax movement than there is. Therefore, it's better to be opaque, not reveal the truth, get everybody vaxxed, and ultimately the public health outcome will be better. That's at least the, uh, the innocent explanation. And I believe that a lot of people, um, are going on that. I have several friends who are doctors who recommend the vaccine or have gotten vaccinated themselves. My beloved vac- uh, family doctor who's taken care of me and guided me through a lot of anti-aging medicine for the 25 years that I've worked with her, she is urging me to get the vaccine. None of these people read the the basic literature, but based on what they've been told as, as doctors, based on the the usual usual culprits, um, they believe, as you said, that, yeah, maybe there are some adverse events, but that it's important for the public, uh, for the as a public health measure to get everybody vaccinated. And of course, so, so just to finish the, the big pieces of my story, the next big piece of the story is you look at the suppression of legitimate, um, very effective therapies that are um, that can be used early to to treat covid keep people out of the hospital the first one was hydroxychloroquine the a few months later it became clear that ivermectin might be an even better preventive and it's also effective later in the disease why were these so heavily suppressed with clear clearly deceptive uh, massive public relations campaigns to keep people from getting perfectly safe medication that uh, could have um, kept the mortality rate from the uh, from COVID down probably by a factor of 20. Uh, This is, to me, the biggest crime in, in the whole thing is suppressing good treatments. And it's unprecedented. Uh, never before have doctors been prevented from prescribing uh, any medication off-label that's uh, already approved by FDA, let alone these two medications that have been used for decades that millions of people around the world take daily as a preventive. They're so safe. 
right. uh, the, the yeah. last piece of the the narrative uh, that I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. you still there Josh yeah I, I am and I'm so, so I'm I've lost my train of thought. Okay, well, I, I, was just going, I was just going to mention uh, that the uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine both got poisoned, as it were, by association with Trump. And so when my brother, an MD, uh, opens up RFK Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci, which I, I gave to him, and the first thing he sees is this advocacy of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, his reaction is is to you know to think that RFK Jr. is must be you know he's gotten conned or he's turned into a Trump follower or something. Uh, so you know even even uh, you know somebody who's trained to think scientifically about medical issues is vulnerable to this kind of subconscious manipulation. Um, and so yeah, maybe it would have been better if a, Trump had never advocated that stuff. Of, of course, I mean uh, I've also been. Uh, Associated with Trump, even by my my girlfriend, who believes the uh, conventional narrative certainly to a greater extent than I do. Um, but <laughs> I think you're in trouble. And your girlfriend starts you calling think, you Trump. <laughs> you would think that RFK, more than anywhere in the world, is inoculated against that by the fact that his whole family has been associated with the liberal wing of the Democratic Party forever. Right, right, but but for some reason, this this uh, Trump association with the uh, supposed snake oil of of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine has has really gotten that that Trump brand on it. I mean, just like they, you know, they used to sell like you know LSD with uh, you know with these pictures of of uh, famous people on them, Jimi Hendrix or whatever. I mean, you could sell hydroxychloroquine probably with you know, Trump's picture on it. Uh, and, and that probably would be good for the market because the most of the people who want it are sort of pro-Trump because the anti-Trump people have been brainwashed against it. <laughs> I don't know that that's true. It's it's hard to tell. Uh, among the community who thinks the way we do, uh, I tend to be attracted to the, the ones who are uh, left-leaning. So maybe I see them overrepresented, but uh, certainly – there are plenty of people from all sides of the political spectrum who see through the COVID deception. Right. So coming back to the, the last thing I wanted to say about COVID was Omicron. What is it? Uh, there's controversy about whether it came about naturally or whether it was created in a lab. Um, however, it, evolved or was created, it certainly seems to be a boon to humanity. And I think it has the potential to end this whole, quote, crisis and bring us to the point where they can't even manufacture a crisis around it. It's because it is so contagious that it displaces the other variants of the virus. And it is so harmless that almost nobody dies from it. Hospitalizations are way down. Deaths are down, I believe, by a factor of 10 uh, among Omicron patients in the UK compared to people who had all other variants in the past. And that's without any medication. Still, they're, they're being denied medication. 
I think this is, uh, if we're lucky, if things go as, as I hope they do, everybody will be exposed to Omicron. Everybody will either get a mild case or it'll just pass right by them. They won't even know it. And then we'll be immune to future variants of the virus and this thing will end. And that's the exact opposite uh, of the ending forecast by Geert Vandenbosch, who got you know two one out of two parts of his prediction right, where he predicted that due to the widespread vaccination, that variants would arise that would beat the vaccines. They would be adopted to go around the vaccine protection. And that certainly happened. And they would be more contagious, he said. And that certainly happened. Uh, but he thought they might be more virulent. And that didn't happen. So maybe nature is actually smarter than he gave it credit for. Uh, Certainly viruses ought to know that if they kill off their host too quickly, they won't spread as well. And if they can become endemic by being super contagious but not super uh, dangerous, they will do better. So maybe the viruses are actually smarter than Vandenbosch gave them credit for. (laughs) Or else we have this um, white hat working in a bio lab somewhere who's worked and worked until he came up with a harmless variant of the virus that could be a, a real vaccine for the rest of us, uh, giving us robust immunity. The benevolent mad, well, mad scientist hypothesis. Benevolent <laughs> mad scientist. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that from some people. I, I've, um, I think the genetic evidence for Omicron being a lab creation is much weaker than the genetic evidence for the uh, the original virus coming from a laboratory, but who can say? Here's what Heert got right and what he got wrong. He got right that a lot of people vaccinated is going to drive natural evolution of the virus very quickly uh, toward something that can evade the vaccine. Here's what he got wrong. I think uh, this was almost a year ago when he made the statement, it wasn't widely known yet that the spike protein was the toxic part of the virus. So he just imagined random mutations in the virus. He didn't imagine that what this virus is going to have to do to evade the vaccine is to mutate its spike protein. Well, the spike protein is already optimized to kill you. And when the the spike protein mutates, as has happened, all most of the many mutations in Omicron are concentrated in the spike protein. Well, that that stands to reason. It's trying to evade people who have this very narrow focused immunity only to the spike protein. As As the virus figures out how to evade the vaccinated population, it's also mutating away the the toxic part. So, so maybe maybe injecting uh, injecting half the planet with this super toxic spike protein uh, wasn't such a bad idea because it it taught the virus how to create a less toxic spike protein. <laughs> At least it wasn't a bad idea for those of us who didn't get the, the shots. <laughs> uh, exactly. Just so. <laughs> hmm. Well, you know, science is is a wild and, and wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> Oh boy. So, so we pretty well covered the uh, Omicron article. So let's, let's move on to the wide ranging discussion about what's really going on on this planet. Uh, and you, you came up with a whole bunch of interesting thoughts and links that you sent me. Uh, the first one was about miracles and you sent a link to a story from Charles Eisenstein, who's one of my favorite, uh, Substack subscriptions. 
a very miraculously well-written piece on miracles. So Yeah, this was 13 years ago. Can I, can I read you the first uh, sure. couple of paragraphs? Sure. This is Eisenstein. It says, what is a miracle? It's not the intercession of a supernatural being into material affairs, not an event that violates the laws of the universe. A miracle is something that is impossible from one's current understanding of reality and truth, but that becomes possible from a new understanding. A miracle is more than an event. It's an invitation. It says, this universe is bigger than you thought it was. It invites us to step into a larger world in which new things are possible. A miracle can blow apart our world if we accept it. Indeed, sometimes we do not accept it. Sometimes we relegate it to the category of, that was weird, an exception to life. And we preserve normalcy and think and live as we always have, as if nothing had happened. When faced with an event that defies our usual explanations, we discard the event to preserve the explanation. Well, today we can no longer afford to ignore miracles. The world and its inhabitants are subject now to afflictions for which there is no cure, no hope from within normal possibility. Anyone who truly understands the magnitude of the global ecological crisis knows there is no hope, just as there's no hope for stage four cancer patients or MS sufferers or the victim of a legion of incurable diseases that arose in the 20th century, nor is there any reasonable hope for peace and justice in Palestine or Tibet or the prison system, nor for the resolution of any of the entrenched in inequities of our world. Long ignored, the gathering crisis of ecology, energy, economy, and society pierces our complacency now with undeniable urgency, and we realize we have no choice but to accomplish the impossible. Another way to put this is that it is time to enter the miracle consciousness. Another way to put that it is it's time to accept the invitation to step into a larger world. So that's Eisenstein talking already 13 years ago. Wow. He, he certainly got, got that right. Uh, we definitely, and you know, what, what that, uh, discussion of miracles, uh, kind of, uh, reminds me of is, uh, my dissertation work in Morocco ended up, uh, you know, it was about mir the miracles of the Sufi saints. And I did a structure, uh -huh. I did a structural analysis of it because, well, my, uh, my mentors were all structuralists. Uh, so I was stuck with that. And, uh, I looked at a pattern and uh, the title of the of the, of the, uh, dissertation is repetition and rupture. And so my argument is that the kind of normalcy or the, you know, the expected or habit, hab habituality, right, uh, is, uh, a kind of a, a straightforward pattern in which we know what to expect. And then a, a rupture in that pattern that breaks the pattern is the miraculous moment. And I, I did these, you know, I, I looked at the patterns of the miracle stories, which begin with a sort of with a habitual narrative that then is kind of ruptured by the paradoxically expected uh, miracle. And, and then I compare that also to, to, to uh, Sufi vicar chanting, which you know, you chant the same thing over and over, like la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, over and over and over and over. And then at some moment, the guy leading the chant, if it's a mass vicar, like changes it. And in that moment of where, where he shifts it, that's when you fall into a deeper trance. Um, so the wow. <laughs> habituality or normalcy, especially if it's, if it's negative, right? We're stuck in all of this 
deterministic kind of doom. And that becomes a, a pattern over and over as we doom scroll. And this kind of miracle consciousness that Eisenstein is calling for involves like the moment of rupture out of that, right? And into a world of like endless possibility because that pattern no longer applies. So that, that's kind of what, what that essay, which I, I thank you for bringing my attention, uh, sort of those are the thoughts it stimulated. Wow. I, um, fascinated as usual to, to learn about these uh, pieces of your background. Um, my, while you were doing that, I was writing my dissertation in theoretical physics, and a, a lot of people ask me, well, you know, how can you, as a physicist, believe in in miracles? So here's my answer to that. Um, when people think of physics, we're really stuck in the 19th century notion of determinism, the idea that the universe is a machine. And Poincaré was famous for saying, if you tell me the position and the velocity of every particle in the universe right at this moment, I can tell you the whole past and the whole future of the universe. And that's implied in Newton's equations. But in quantum mechanics in the 20th century, that was changed to you can't know the position and the momentum. If you know the position of the particle, you can't know the momentum. If you know the momentum, you can't know the position. And you can learn some compromise between the position and the momentum of each particle. But in the end, half the information, fully half the information is missing that you need to determine the future. So um, what, it, what do physicists use for that half of the information? The postulate is that it's purely random, that there's no pattern at all. Quantum random is the best kind of random there is. There's no pattern at all. And quick, quick, quick question, Josh. Is it exactly half, exactly 50.00000% of the information is missing? That would be kind of an odd <laughs> number. Well, in, in the sense that if you know the, um, the momentum, then well, mm -hmm. there's a principle called complementarity. You can express the wave function in terms of any variable. It could be momentum. It could be position. It could be some combination. Um, and it could be energy. Whatever you express it in, you lose completely all knowledge of the complementary variable. And you need both the variable and the complementary variable to do any predicting. So, uh, you know, it's not something like 50.000. It's a question of there for every variable, there's a complementary variable. The more you pin down the variable, the more you lose information about the complementary variable. Gotcha. That comes from quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So so the next step in this comes from the pair laboratory, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Group at um, Princeton during the 1960s, 70s, 80s, no, not the 60s, started in the 70s um, and continued right through 2010 or so. They, they were kind of so, the successors to the Rhine experiments of the 50s, which really put Psy on the map. Yes, right. And uh, I'd say that 
there there are certainly successors today. Um, Dean Radin is probably at the forefront of um, making a rigorous science out of psi. But I, the, to me, the pivotal experiment that came out of the Pear Lab, um, Robert John and Brenda Dunn, was putting people in front of a quantum random number generator. It says, so these numbers are supposed to, by theory, be perfectly random. See if you can influence them. And by gum, these random people who they pull off the streets or Princeton undergraduates um, can have a small influence on that number. Uh, it's not easy to measure it in any one sitting, but if you collect data as they did over many decades, you get uh, um, seven standard deviations is the way that a physicist would put it, a probability of many billions to one that this could be by chance. The, um, people are instructed to see if you can make the number go higher. The number goes higher. If they, they're instructed to see if you can make the number go lower, it goes lower. And those two curves diverged um, not steadily, but um, on a random walk over three decades to the point where they really were seven standard deviations apart. And uh, this is a proof that what that half of the information that's missing has something to do with intention, with consciousness, with um, beings, carnate or incarnate, that are influencing the world. So, so this is my metaphysics, that physics has it exactly right about how quantum mechanics works, except that this business about um, quantum randomness being completely random is all wrong what we call quantum random is actually the way in which miracles come in, the way that consciousness or intention or beings that are uh, out there trying to protect us or beings that are trying to harm us, all of that comes in and somehow comes into play, uh, I believe, in these tiny, um, tiny events that nevertheless can add up to um, huge changes. And imagine if this happens in one person's brain, there's one small quantum event, but it turns into an idea and the idea is something that can change humanity. Um, no, I, I this makes perfect like, sense, I, of course, with, in terms of... I, had, I felt like I was the beneficiary of, miracle, of a miracle like that when I had a, my bicycle went head on into a truck six months ago and people don't survive accidents like that but somehow my contortions in the air and the way that the truck hit me i don't know how it happened you know i i, I have no memory of that second when i was uh, flying through the air but all of the damage was in my legs my legs are a complete mess but my heart my brain my lungs my kidneys my liver completely undamaged in that and yeah that's, that's kind of like I the stories of fine. people who, who fall fall out of airplanes and survive by landing the right way so um so that's how i think about miracles um and then you come to well yeah but is there 
are there really miracles? What what are the evidence? And then we uh, we're we're finally coming to this long laundry list of things that conventional not only conventional science but the mainstream media have just brushed aside as uh, Eisenstein says that was weird and then they move on the next day uh, i guess the classic example of that was uh, december of 2017 when the front page of the new york times announced yeah well you know ufo's really are there and they show um, data from the battleship or the aircraft carrier the nimitz in 2004 so this is uh, already 13 years later when they're finally reporting this when it was released by the navy these um lozenge shaped vehicles hover uh tens of thousands of feet overhead instantaneously they're down right next to the water they disappear in one place they reappear in another place um and they have both visual sightings and radar of of these vehicles that are flying in ways that conventional physics says is impossible. Um, and the Times had this one story about it, including quotes from uh, the then director of UFO research at the at the Pentagon, who left the program because he thought that this information shouldn't be secret. Um, he was quoted as saying that there are warehouses, plural, in Las Vegas with the remains of uh, alien spaceships that have either crashed or been shot down that we are in the process of trying to reverse engineer. So Las Vegas is a weirder place than most people realize. The, uh, <laughs> the casinos all have uh, psychic security guards to make sure that those people who can influence random number generators aren't also influencing roulette <laughs> wheels. <laughs> and then there are warehouses somewhere uh, full of crashed uh, saucers. You know, when you say this, most people would say, oh, you guys, come on, you should be publishing in the National Enquirer. But it's it's interesting that so many seemingly serious, well-informed people have uh, recounted these things, and the New York Times is now starting to back them up. Well, look what the New York Times did. They, they published this with really jaw-dropping, paradigm-shifting information on their front page in the middle of December in 2017, and then they went back to business as usual, They, mm. as if this had no effect on anything. Uh, on our understanding of events in the world, uh, of national defense, of who's pulling the strings. And uh, I mean, that, that's what I, I wanted to talk to you about. So, so you today. think one of these days we're going to see a story sort of, you know, down on the lower corner of, of, of page one with a little picture of a flying saucer on the White House lawn. And it'll have in, in fairly small headlines, uh, aliens land on White House lawn, <laughs> a story on page 16. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there are certainly lots of people um, who specialize in alien abductions, alien landings, uh, UFO spottings, and who've compiled all these stories. There are, as you say, there are too many of them to be just discarded as well. You know, somebody was hallucinating or there was this mass 
psychosis. <laughs> People all saw the same object in the sky, and it was all shaped like a, a needle coming in to save us. I, I, don't, I don't believe in mass hallucinations, except maybe in the case of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there, there may be some strange aspect to UFOs involving uh, some kind of a it's unusual interface between the kind of normal space time and matter uh, and, and 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 psychic uh, abilities that is you know they, they might be sort of there might be an element of, of dreamlike uh, uh, you know call it hallucination or what have you or maybe the the craft are even operated by uh, some kind of psychic element uh, so that there's been that kind of speculation from people uh, like Jacques Vallée, of course, uh, who who noticed the the very you know very very strange pattern of uh, you know they, the pattern of of UFO reports doesn't really make a lot of sense from the perspective of kind of technological vehicles visiting a, a different planet, and it actually resonates more with stories of of fairies and jinn and these other kinds of prankster beings. Uh, who are doing all kinds of mostly senseless things, uh, whose interactions with, with humans are somewhere sometimes malevolent, but more often sort of, you know, prankish. Uh, so I, I don't know if you've read Valet. Um, yeah. Yeah. But a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So I agree that it's, a, it's such a complex subject. Uh, there's, there's lots to recommend that view, but there are also, there's lots to recommend the idea that it's uh, technically advanced as well and that these are real physical events. Uh, they make blips on radar screens uh, that correspond to the visual sightings. And uh, one of the things that's most salient for me is so many stories from people, uh, from the generals who are in, in charge of uh, an ICM, ICBM base where they're uh, – They've got nuclear warheads at their disposal. It's one push of a button away from annihilating the world. And one day these UFOs appear overhead and all the missiles go down at once. And they, they can't, the, the red light goes on. The, the missile is inoperable. <laughs> um, it would seem to be a very real physical effect. Yeah. No wonder they're viewed as a uh, national at, at security problem. Cases. At yeah, least, they they can actually interfere with us destroying the planet. That's that's a problem <laughs> from a, from a military <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Um, so so uh, how, what does this have to do with the reports of um, unusual uh, events and uh, objects and so on from the distant past? Uh, you you did send uh, a link to. Various hypotheses about the the Younger Dryad impact event uh, twelve thousand five hundred years ago, when the sea levels may have risen hundreds of feet very very quickly, possibly drowning some advanced civilization that built the pyramids and, and other artifacts. Um, what how, what do you make of that, and and what's the connection to UFOs? For the connections, I'm just throwing out weird things that don't fit into our reality that we've been um, discarding and refusing to consider. Um, And uh, I don't have answers to that, but I I would like to tell the story as I've learned it 
from Graham Hancock and really his life work and a series of books he's written and, and many good uh, presentations and, and video. As an introduction to this, I recommend his um, interview with Joe Rogan a, a few years ago when the book America Before was coming out. He sort of summarized everything that he learned to that date in, in an interview with with Rogan, which is really a good introduction. So what the, what's this about? Start with the idea that if you, if you really look carefully at the pyramid, well, if you look at the pyramids at all, you realize this was not created with Stone Age technology. People who didn't have the wheel, people who didn't have steel, um, the blocks are much too big. They've been transported from much too far. They're fitted too tightly together, precision made. Um, this was a high technology enterprise. And you look around the other areas of Egypt and you find other indications of high technology. Um, one of them that I've learned about from, I think he calls himself Ben. Can't remember his his YouTube channel for the moment. There are drill holes, drills. There are clean holes that are drilled in very hard rock, and you can see the the markings from the the turn of the drill. That you can deduce the pitch of the drill from well, how far does the drill advance? into this rock for each turn that it makes. And it's a, the drills are advancing 10 times further into the rock with each turn than a modern high-speed drill that we use in, um, in shops that will make a countertop for you to, to drill through uh, granite, to make a granite countertop. Um, they had... Uh, this is... Uh, Two of the many indications that they had high technology at some point in the past that has been lost. There's a, a stone that's many miles from where it was quarried. This big, long, rectangular stone that's used as the, the base of a, of a building in Lebanon that weighs more than a thousand tons. Uh, you know, how do you quarry and transport something like that? Uh, it's beyond present present day technology. Uh, so put this together with many ancient stories of floods, put it together with Plato's story of Atlantis. Plato tells uh, of an Atlantis civilization. It was somewhere out beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which is the Straits of Gibraltar. And it sunk into the ocean 12,700 years ago as measured from today's date. Uh, Plato seemed to have hit, hit the nail exactly on the head for the date of the Younger Dryas impact event. What's the Younger Dryas impact event? Well, this, this is traditional geology now. It's, it's somewhat new that, uh, the geologists have figured this out, but there was, um, a very sudden end to the last ice age, again, 12,700 years ago. Um, most of North America 
was covered with an ice sheet two miles thick and also um, most of Europe. And very quickly, this was um, turned into water. It made the oceans rise by 100 meters in a very short time. So Hancock's hypothesis putting all this together is that there was an advanced civilization at that time that ended very rapidly 12,700 years ago. Um, imagine that it was a global civilization dependent on supply chains the way we are uh, to, to for the fuel that uh, that runs our automobiles to, for the food that we eat. Um, the, the modern city couldn't last for more than a, a couple of weeks without supply chains from trucks and uh, and boats. So most of the population is in cities on the on the edge of the continent that would be very vulnerable if sea sea levels rose rapidly. And Hancock's hypothesis was that everybody who was plugged into this global technology disappeared very rapidly and that the technology was lost. The only people who survived were people like today. The, the, there are people who uh, still live a tribal, self-sufficient life and they're not Local self-sufficiency is something that they've known for a long time, and they're less impacted by this uh, huge change in climate and the global rise of sea levels. And it's the primitive communities that are able to survive, and they reboot civilization very slowly, starting over again um, 12,000 years ago. And there's some eer eerie resonances there with uh, predictions of possible rapid sea level rises if uh, things go wrong in Antarctica uh, and so on and so forth today. Yeah, so the reason I bring the story in is that I, I, I think of this as Noah's flood, and it destroyed the last time that uh, humanity developed uh, safety and hubris. Uh, and this event that we're going through now may be the equivalent of Noah's flood, the the most the most dramatic event in human history in the last twelve thousand seven hundred years. Not because of COVID explicitly, but because we've, as Eisenstein said, uh, abused our ecosystem so flagrantly. Global warming is just one tiny part of it. Uh, we're destroying species. We're disrupting ecosystems as if we could just plant crops and develop a monoculture and we'll, we'll be fine even if the ecosystem is destroyed. Well, um, we that, don't know what it's like to build. Mind. Yeah, we don't know what it's like to, to build a farm in a world that's destitute of microbial life and fungal life, insects, um, nature, nature's ecosystems are vast um, self-regulating systems. And 
to think that we can grow life, just the species that we need, grow the food that we need without the support of a global ecosystem is complete folly. In my opinion, and as an ecologist, uh, it's just not going to happen that if we if we destroy the ecosystem, we'll destroy ourselves. And that's the crisis that's underlying the crisis today, that even if there was no um, COVID, if there was no uh, none of these uh, life threatening world events like confrontations between the U.S. and Russia, the U.S. and China, uh, threatening nuclear war, still uh, humanity would be at a very critical phase when we either have to change our ways very drastically and very quickly or we're facing extinction as a species. And that leads to the question of whether this outrageous damage that's being done to the planet right now corresponds somehow with not just bad leadership. We all know that we have bad leadership, but maybe even deliberately evil leadership. And you mentioned in your list of these sort of data points that are outside the realm of, of what's considered sort of normal in the media and the academy, this uh, issue of elite Satanism, ritual child mutilation and murder, skull and bones, Bohemian Grove, and if that is uh, all part of some kind of learned psychopathy. Uh, and I certainly would think so. You know, the classic example being the skull and bones uh, ritual where they indoctrinate their new members by having them lie naked in a coffin in front of all the other members and their members' fathers and masturbate while recounting their entire sexual history. And I guess after they've done that, they're pretty shameless. And now they only relate to these other bonesmen, as it were, as their peers. And everybody else is just a kind of, you know, cattle to be manipulated. Oh, I, I think it's actually, I mean, we hear about things like that. I think the things that we don't hear about, if you follow Whitney Webb, the um, revelations she's come up with are just shocking and mm-hmm. mind-numbing how people can do this ritual child murder uh yeah the the franklin scandal material the franklin scandal and the franklin cover-up those two books uh, are good introductions for anyone who's skeptical about whether this is really going on and we look at uh, epstein's disappearance whether or not he's really dead we look at the trial of maxwell and this is the tip of the iceberg sort of rearing its head where we can start to see it but um there's evidence that there's a, a global network of child kidnapping, child abuse, and that many of the powerful people that we <laughs> that we respect and elevate the positions of authority among us, like the Clintons, like Bill Gates, are directly linked to Epstein. Uh-huh. So the the British royal family, I guess, is the other example. So what do we make of this? Um, are these people trained to have no regard for human life? I, I I like to think that the feeling that life is sacred is just part of our humanity, that we're born with it. And maybe there are some people who have genetic defects and they're born without that, and they're born psychopaths. And maybe there are other people 
who could have the humanity beaten out of them by psychological manipulation, um, such as ritual participating in ritual child abuse and child murder. Um, I've read it as much of that as I can stomach. I, I, I don't know that I want to read more, but um, I believe that there are organizations that turn human beings inhuman for what purpose? To fight wars, to make them better soldiers, or to make them uh, able to uh, withhold, make them able to organize a propaganda campaign to demonize uh, a medication that could save hundreds of thousands of lives. Well, this raises uh, the, the problem of evil, not not just the theodicy kind of uh, theology problem of evil in the universe per se, but then the, the problem of the uh, higher levels of our society seemingly being dominated uh, or at least infested by this uh, kind of extreme incarnation of, of evil. Uh, and, and one uh, take on this I've heard on the show from Gordon Duff, who's a former intelligence community uh, with supposed a certain degree of MJ-12 clearance, is he claims he got a memo from the uh, intelligence community higher-ups saying that there's an extra-dimensional life form that feeds on human suffering and interfaces with selected humans to maximize the suffering that it feeds on. But don't worry, it's just one of the great many, uh, you know, interplanetary and interdimensional life forms that come through Earth. So uh, don't don't worry your pretty head about it. And, uh, of course, Gordon thought that it sounded pretty worrisome, but, you know, what does he know? Um. Yeah, I'm I'm letting a lot of stuff into my consciousness. That I guess it's far enough away that I I haven't let that one that one in. Okay, well, yeah, don't listen to my interview with Gordon Duff, uh, Ellen <laughs> Brown from two two or three years ago. Then, <laughs> oh boy, but but you know, they, it, it, but I I yeah. I, I want to raise the questions without proposing that I have any answers at all. Who is orchestrating this pandemic at the level? maybe above Bill Gates and Tony Fauci. Who has made this happen? What are they thinking? Are they just purely evil? Are they, um, do they have some legitimate goal in mind that they, they're not telling us, but that we might relate to if we heard it? Or are they just complete psychopaths who uh, enjoy mass suffering and mass murder? Probably, probably the latter, I would, I would guess. I, I, I want to raise, you know, I, I, I want people thinking about this and trying to, trying to, uh, discover the, the motivations and the, uh, either people or maybe discarnate beings, maybe beings from another planet who are bringing about this crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you've read, uh, Doris, uh, Lessing's uh, Shikasta books that the first one was called Shikasta and then there were it was more than a trilogy I think that came out after that but that's a very interesting sort of science fictiony um, look at the possibility that uh, earth had these more benevolent Graham Hancock style civilizations in the distant past and then these uh, nasty entities from somewhere uh, got their hooks into the planet and really drained it and messed with it and uh, so 
Lessing kind of you know gives the uh, the terrible events of the fall of the last benevolent civilization, which may have been that uh, lesser dryad event, and then she sees it leading up to a nuclear holocaust, uh, after which the uh, the bad energy vampire critters will have burned themselves out, and something good will be arising from that. I don't know, but uh, uh, there are a lot of sort of myths uh, or mythic visions of how this all is playing out, and we're almost at the end of this hour. So uh, briefly, how about the possibility that a miracle will save us from these uh, psych- psychopathic or, or worse well, it's leaders? Well, not a miracle that will save us. We are the miracle. We are, so, so our miracle we're, we're gonna, manifests. We're going to have to grow into being that miracle, and I don't know what that entails, but... Um, I think each of us looks into our heart and say, what's my role? How can I help steer humanity out of this disaster toward the kind of world that I want to live in? And I, I, I don't, I don't look to a miracle from the outside to save us. I, I, I think it's uh, too passive, uh, a posture for, and, and, I couldn't imagine doing that. We have to be the miracle. That makes sense to me, too. And that's what some of the Muslim theologians uh, I've talked to say about some of these, these Shia people who are waiting for the Mahdi and Jesus to come and save us. Uh, the ones that I respect the most are the ones who say, rather than just waiting, what we're going to do is to be like really make extra effort to do shockingly good things. Like we're going to, we're going to try to be miraculously uh, good in standing up against evil ourselves. And then that's, what's going to make it all happen. Um, so that, that all makes sense to me too. Uh, well, I think we did hit the end of the hour and it's too bad because this, uh, this we're is just beginning. We're just yeah. getting going here. You know, I, I think, uh, Allah saved you from that truck for a reason, Josh. You're asking very good questions. Uh, and we're going to have to raise these questions again. I have a lot more questions. I don't have any answers <laughs> except that we know what we're about. We're about peace, freedom, local autonomy, diverse communities, developing bonds with each other and with the other life forms on this planet, the plants and the animals that we know, the fungi, and maybe with disembodied spirits or alien beings too. Um, But let's start close to home, building communities, building self-reliance, local autonomy, and uh, create the world that we would like to see in the future uh, alongside this dystopian, centrally organized society that seems to be imposed on us. Amen. That's a good place to leave it. Well, thank you, Josh Middeldorf. Uh, I love talking with you. We're going to have to make this a regular thing. I hope so. Okay. Take care. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.